Well, take your Bibles and turn back to the book of 1 Peter, and uh, this is uh, an odd Sunday, not knowing what uh, was to, uh, what I was going to find here looking at me when I was up here, but typically on, a, on a, what I would call a strange Sunday where we know people are traveling and moving to and fro, I, I typically don't like to continue on in the exposition of the book we're going through because I don't want people to miss, um, you know, an important section, and um, and in this case, uh, the next section of our study that we're going to be studying in First Peter is chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, which is perfect for a New Year's message. And so I want to save that for next Sunday, and hopefully God will use that to launch us all into the new year with a, a renewed longing and passion for the Word of God. But let me just remind you of what we looked at last week. And how it leads into what we're going to be looking at, Lord willing, next week, and then try to provide something this morning that will bridge the gap uh, and really fill in the gap, um, that white space in between uh, chapter 1, verse 25, and chapter 2, verse 1. And if you remember, we looked at last week, uh, verse 22 of chapter 1, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren... Fervently love one another from the heart. And then Peter spends the rest of his time in this closing section of chapter 1 talking about the Word of God, which leads into chapter 2. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. And then he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 8, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Did you notice four times in those verses that I read the Bible is mentioned or the Word of God is mentioned, verse 23, the, that we were saved through the living and enduring Word of God or born again through the living and enduring Word of God. And then in verse 25, but the Word of the Lord endures forever and then Again, and this is the word which was preached to you. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word. I don't know what you all got for Christmas, but whether you got what you always wanted or didn't get anything at all, you already possess the most important, valuable thing you will ever own in your lifetime. Do you realize that that book that you're holding right now, that book that is sitting on your lap right now, is your most prized possession? Nothing is more invaluable or indispensable to your life than the Word of God, than the Scriptures, than the Bible that you hold in your hands. I mean, it's right up there with air and food and, and shelter, right? We call these the basic necessities of life or the essentials, something that's absolutely necessary, something that is extremely important. And for us as pilgrims, as we've been learning about, the book of 1 Peter is a pocket guide for pilgrims, how to live holy, hope-filled lives in a hostile world that's not our home, Maybe the only thing that would make that picture any better is if they all had a Bible in their hand as they were walking right through this earth on their way to heaven. Because the Bible is really, as a pilgrim, our most prized possession. And that's what I decided to title this message this morning, The Pilgrim's Prized Possession. Listen to this anonymous description of the essential and critical nature of God's word that was found on the wall of a pastor's study. 
It reads this. This book contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrine is holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, heaven is opened. And the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth and health to the soul and a river of pleasure. It is given to you here in this life, will be opened at the judgment, and is established forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and condemns all those who trifle with its contents. What an excellent description of why the Word of God is so invaluable, why it's so indispensable, why we can't live without it. Have you ever asked yourself that question, why do you need the Bible why can't you live without the Bible? Well, I want to just hopefully stir all of us up by way of reminder this morning, not say anything new or look at any uh, passage you've, you've probably never looked at before, but I want to uh, look at what the Bible says about the Bible. I figured that's a safe sermon, right? Talking about the Bible, what the Bible says about the Bible. Because when I read First Peter verses 23 through chapter 2, verse 2, and I see the mentions of the Word of God one after another, after another, after another. My mind just floods with all the other verses in the Scriptures that talk about the Bible and talk about the Word of God. And so there are really three key passages in, in the Scriptures that talk about the Scriptures. There, there's more, but I think these would be, if we were playing Family Feud this morning, right, the top three right, passages in the scriptures, about the scriptures, hopefully you would say one of these three passages. Because each of these three passages really give us the reasons why the word of God is invaluable and indispensable and should be the most prized possession in our lives. So let's look first of all at Psalm 19. Psalm 19, go ahead and turn there with me. Psalm 19, and here we find how God's word is sufficient, or the sufficiency of the scriptures. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11, again, a familiar passage, I'm sure, to most of you, but there is no passage in the Bible that describes the sufficiency of scripture more concisely, more eloquently than this passage. And David, of course, was a master poet inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he strung together these descriptive titles and adjectives in an attempt to put into words all the wonderful characteristics and benefits of God's Word. And in each of these statements that we're going to be reading and, and, and talking about uh, includes three elements. There's a name for the Word of God, there's a characteristic of the Word of God, and there's a benefit or an effect of the Word of God. And so as we go through these verses, again, quickly, because this is not the only passage we're going to look at this morning, we're going to look at two others if we have time, look for the six names, the six characteristics, and the six benefits, because together they form a summary of what the Bible is and what the Bible does. So first statement in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. So the Bible is perfect and produces conversion. I think that's how we could principalize what David was saying there. And he was using the term, the comprehensive term uh, in, in the Hebrew for all of God's revealed will, and that is the law of the Lord. 
which perfectly addresses every aspect of life. Teaching a person what they should believe, uh, who they should be, what they should do. And so the Bible has everything that we need in it to live a godly life. If something is necessary for life, it will be in the Bible. And so consequently, it doesn't need to be changed or supplemented or integrated with anything else. It's, It's totally sufficient in and of itself. Don't let anybody ever convince you that, that the Bible's good, but, but you need other things to supplement it. There's a reason why we're forbidden in Scripture to add anything to Scripture or to take anything away from Scripture or to alter it in any way. You probably remember what the, one of the closing verses in, in the Bible is in Revelation chapter 22 Verses 18 and 19, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book, and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. In other words, when you mess with the word of God, you're damning yourself to hell. Why? Because it's already perfect, just the way it is. There's no need for additional revelation, visions, or words from the Lord. I'll never forget sitting, having lunch with my wife in a local restaurant, and the waiter that was serving us was also serving another lady who was sitting by herself, and I couldn't help but overhear the conversation that she was having, and she was um, reading a, a Christian book, a very popular uh, Christian book, and I'm, I'm blanking on the name of it um, right now, but it was about a man's experience having died and gone to heaven. And he came back to life. He was, uh, you know, brought back to life in the emergency room, and, and so he wrote about his experience in heaven. And she was reading this book, and I about fell out of my chair when she said to the waiter, you've got to read this book. It's helped me get closer to God even more than the Bible. And I was just kind of moving my chair over at that point, not to get struck by lightning, right, that was coming down, right? The point was, wow, no, nothing ever should get in the way of the Bible, right? The Bible is the ultimate resource that God has given us to get to know him. So there's, instead of looking for something else, more from God, we should focus on obeying what he's already given us, what we already have. And when we do, it will completely transform our lives. No matter what our life is like, regardless of how bad our sins or how big our problems are, the Bible is able to convert us, revive us, renovate us, rebuild our lives. This is the doctrine of regeneration when it says here, uh, restoring the soul. Again, Peter made it very clear that we are born again by the imperishable word of God, the living and enduring word of God. So the Bible is perfect and produces conversion, but notice what else he says here in verse 7. The testimony of the Lord, there's another name for the Bible, is sure making wise the simple. So the Bible is trustworthy and provides instruction. The Bible is trustworthy and provides instruction. So it serves as a a trustworthy testimony of who God is, what he has done, and what what he wants you and I to do and to be. And so it provides an unwavering and immovable foundation on which a person can build their life and eternal destiny. You may have you may be familiar with the, with the expression, if you've ever read a doctrinal statement of a, of a church or an institution, they often use this language, that the Bible is the only trustworthy standard of faith and practice. Have you heard that before? Basically, what it's saying is that, that the Bible is the only trustworthy standard of what we should believe and how we should live our lives. And there's nothing more sure than the Word of God. In fact, Peter... In 2 Peter, describes his eyewitness experience at the transfiguration. When we talked about this, if you're here uh, 
Friday night at the Christmas Eve service, we talked about how Christ revealed his glory, kind of peeled back his flesh, if you will, uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And, and Peter saw that. He was there, one of the three disciples that went up on the mountain with him that day. And he said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, we do not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, we didn't just make this stuff up. We, we're not just passing on some, some fables or some lore that we heard. We, we saw his majesty with our own eyes. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. They heard the voice of God affirming that Jesus was his son. You're thinking, well, it doesn't get any better than that. I mean, if I could just have that experience, man, my relationship with God would be locked for life. But then Peter goes on, he says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. And you say, well, what is he talking about, this prophetic word, well, he's talking about the scripture. We know that because the next verse, he says, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. In other words, this thing that you have right here is better than hearing the audible voice of God. That's what Peter said. I heard the audible voice of God. But this is even more sure than that. That, that was an experience, right? You, you, could, you could say, well, this happened or maybe that happened. How come that happened to you and not me? But this is sure. This is, this is stable. This is trustworthy. And so David says that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It helps people to discern truth from error, what to believe, what not to believe. And ultimately, it leads them to salvation, Paul told Timothy to stick with the scriptures, and he reminded him it was through the scriptures that he had gotten saved. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, and from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And Paul said in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, and hearing what? The word of Christ. So the Bible is, is perfect, and it produces conversion. The Bible is trustworthy. It provides instruction. But thirdly, the Bible is right and produces jubilation. Look at verse 8 of Psalm 19. The precepts of the Lord, again, another word for the Bible, are right, rejoicing the heart. So the Bible is right and produces jubilation. And that word precepts, I think, is important that we understand what that word means. God's precepts are specific, authoritative orders concerning the practical matters of everyday life. His precepts. In other words, they clearly point out the right path on which we're to walk. And the Bible helps us avoid all the other paths that so many people travel down in their futile attempts to find jubilation or happiness or joy whether that's drugs or alcohol or sex or material things, you name it. These are all paths that the scripture helps us avoid. And when a person follows God's path and lives a righteous life, they experience joy and happiness and blessing. Some of you know I wrote a book called Expository Listening, and whenever I get asked to maybe sign a copy, the verse that I put alongside my name is Luke chapter 11, verse 28, that says, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. In other words, not blessed just because you hear the Bible or you read the Bible. You're blessed when you hear the Bible, read the Bible, and then what? Do it. We're all good. We're all here today, sitting here, listening to the word of God, reading the word of God. We're, we're hearing it. But the question is, what are you going to do about it when you leave, right? That's what brings true blessing in life. And so the psalmist always went to scripture for help and hope whenever he was discouraged or depressed. 
It rejoices the heart, he said. God, God's word helped him to regain the proper perspective and to regain his joy. You might remember Jeremiah, the prophet, said this in Jeremiah 15, 16. The words, thy words, were, fa- were found, and I ate them, and, they, and the words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. That should be our experience whenever we read the scriptures, right? That they should just bring us joy. Because they refocus us. But that's not all. The Bible also is pure and provides direction. Look at the second part of verse 8. The commandment of the Lord, again, another word for the Bible, is pure, enlightening the eyes. So the Bible is pure and provides direction. In other words, the Bible is not a book full of suggestions or good ideas. It's filled with commands that are authoritative and binding for all people. They're commands, the commandment of the Lord. And and they light up a person's life and they guide them and so they can clearly see when things are dark and confusing. They enlighten the eyes. When things seem blurry and you're not quite sure what to think or what to do, They come into clear focus when you look at them through the light of Scripture. Psalm 119, 105, thy word is a lamp to my feet and a what? A light to my path. But there's more. The Bible also is clean and produces expectation. Look at verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Interesting, he describes the word of God as the fear of God, or the fear of the Lord. In other words, the scriptures should cause us to have a reverential awe and respect for God. God's word is without sin, it's without evil, and since pure things do not decay, it will last forever. And we learned that last week, right? That the word of God endures forever, the living and enduring word of God. Another way to consider that is that the truth of God is absolute. It's unchanging because its source is God who never, what? Changes. It's eternally relevant for every person in every generation. God's word never gets outdated. It never needs to be updated. It never needs to be edited. And again, quoting Isaiah 40 verse 8, same verse that Peter quoted, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. There's one more. Notice the end of verse 9 there. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. So the Bible is true and produces consecration. I think how we could maybe say this, is that the Bible is, is a divine evaluation of man's thoughts and actions, the judgments of the Lord. It, it's, it's God's standard for judging life and, and, and etern- the eternal destiny of every person. And so in a world full of lies, God's word is the sole source of truth. And we can depend on the Bible to help us know the truth about everything that really matters in life. And when we embrace it, when we embrace God's truth as it is, God's truth, it will cause us to live holy and righteous lives. They are righteous altogether. Now you may have not noticed this, but just go back over those descriptions, the words that David used to describe God's word, perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true. Do those words remind you of anybody? Those, those sound like they, they ring of the attributes of God, don't they? Those words also describe God. Why? Because God... God and his word are one in the same, 
God's word is simply a reflection of God's character. And a person's view of God's word really reflects their view of God, and their view of God reflects their view of God's word. And so David had a high view of God, which also meant he had a high view of his word. When I left the Master's Seminary, like all the graduates, we have had an opportunity to share a testimony of how our lives and ministries were impacted or would be impacted long term as a result of our training at the Master's Seminary. And that's really the, the bottom line of what I shared in my testimony was that having come to this seminary, God has instilled in me a high view of himself and a high view of his work. And I want that to be my passion, and I want that to be uh, the passion of anybody that I'm around. I want to be, I want that to be the passion of any church I'm a part of, is that we would have a high view of God and a high view of his word. And, and as long as we maintain a high view of God and a high view of his word, not much wrong is going to go on with our souls or with our church. Amen? So here's David, and what is he doing? He, he's, just, he's just prizing God's word here. And, and it's clear that, that he prized God's word more than anything else in the world, and he submitted his entire life to the scriptures. And it wasn't just a bunch of theology in his head. But it was very practical. Notice the, the way what he believed about the Bible and thought about the Bible affected the way he lived his life. Notice his response to this wonderful word that he just fin got finished describing. Verse 10. Again, talking about the scriptures. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. So first of all, he treasured the scriptures. He treasured the Bible. Why? Because it's profitable. It's profitable. And, and notice how he extolled the value of the scriptures by comparing them to what? To gold which was the most valuable commodity in the ancient Near East. And so he treasured it. He treasured the scriptures. But that wasn't all. Notice what he goes on to say. They are sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. So he not only treasured scripture, he tasted scripture. And God's word was profitable, but it was also enjoyable to him. And so he extolled the value of the scriptures by comparing them to honey, which was the, the sweetest substance known in the ancient Near East. The writer of Psalm 119 said it this way in verse 103. He said, how sweet are your words to my taste, yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And so what David was simply saying, that meditating on the scriptures was a source of great pleasure. It was just like sucking on honey. And it meant more to him than the sweetest, thing, sweetest things in, in life. Job said it this way in Job 23, 12, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. In other words, I would rather read the Bible than eat. And then, of course, we're going to see next week, 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. There's nothing that a little newborn wants more than anything than milk. So he tasted it. He treasured it. He tasted it. But then thirdly, notice he trusted it. He trusted it. He said, moreover, verse 11, by them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. In other words, God's word is not just profitable, it's not just enjoyable, it's also dependable. Why? Because it warns us against the, the suicidal seductions of sin and their devastating consequences. 
It tips us off to the lies and the errors of the world. It cautions us against false teachers and false teaching, and it it alerts us to Satan and spiritual warfare, all this to keep us from sinning. You've heard this expression, I'm sure. I think it was John Bunyan that coined it. This book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. Young people, children, that's a great line to remember. I, in fact, I had a previous copy of the scriptures that's over in my office, and I actually wrote that in the front of my Bible years ago when I was a young person because I wanted to remember that, that this book, sin was either going to keep me from this book or this book was going to keep me from sin. How shall a young man keep his way pure by living according to the word of God? Psalm 119. Notice what he said there, in keeping them, there is great reward. In other words, obedience brings great blessing. Not just temporal blessing, but spiritual blessing. And I think the reference here is to the peace, the rest, the joy, the happiness that those who submit, to their, submit their lives to God's word experience. And so I love that passage because it just, it just simply describes the sufficiency of the Bible. That the, the Bible has everything that we need. And that's what makes it so invaluable, so indispensable. That's why it should be such a prized possession to us. Because, it's a, because of its sufficiency. Well, that's one passage that comes to my mind when I read what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1. Another passage that comes to my mind is 2 Timothy chapter 3. You can turn there now. And if you haven't figured this out yet, this is going to be three sermons in one, is what you're getting, actually. <laughs> 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16, and here is Paul's classic description of the scriptures that really describe its efficiency, its efficiency. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God. In other words, it wasn't written by men, it was written by God who moved men along to write down exactly what he wanted every word, each and every word. And notice he says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. Profitable, useful, helpful. In other words, there's great spiritual benefit to be derived from every word that is proceeded out of the mind and the mouth of God. And he goes on to kind of outline, if you will, or delineate the profitability of God's word. How does, how does God's word work here? And he, he, he basically lists four basic uses or purposes of the Bible, which meet our four basic needs. Notice he says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for number one, what? Teaching. So the Bible teaches us everything that we need to know about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and angels and man and sin and salvation and sanctification and the church and and in times. So it's profitable for teaching. Number two, it's also profitable for what? Reproof, which means that the Bible convicts us of the areas in our lives that, that we're not pleasing to the Lord. It exposes our sin. It refutes Satan's lies and temptations and and rebukes other people's sins as well. And so it's profitable for teaching, reproof, and thirdly, for what? For correction. In other words, it doesn't just confront us or reprove us. It also corrects us. It sets us straight when we get out of line. It helps us get back on our feet and whenever we stumble and we fall. It gets us back on the right path when we stray away from God. And then it also keeps us on that path. Notice it says 
that is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. In other words, it instructs us, it disciplines us like a child when we, as we grow to maturity in Christ. It, it shows us how to live a godly life that's pleasing to the Lord. And so if we were to liken the the, the Bible, if you will, to a, a map or a compass, right? Here we are as pilgrims living in this hostile world headed towards our heavenly home, and we've got our map, we've got our compass in front of us. And so what is Paul saying here? That Scripture, the Bible, shows us the right path to walk on. It shows us when we veer off the right path, and then it shows us how to get back on the right path and then it shows us how to stay on the right path. So I think that's what he's saying here, that it's profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So that, verse 17, the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. In other words, the Bible is an all-purpose tool that God uses to effectively accomplish his work in our lives. We looked at this last week, Isaiah 55, how God sends forth his word and it never returns what? Void. It always accomplishes its purpose for which it was sent forth. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, I quoted this last week as well. Paul was commending the Thessalonian believers, these folks that had gotten radically saved out of idol worship living in the shadow of uh, the, the, the pantheon of all the, the, God, the Greek gods there, Mount Olympus. He says, for this reason, we also thank God constantly that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. So another reason why this should be our most prized possession, because of its efficiency, because it, it, it produces change and growth in our lives. One other passage comes to my mind when I think about what Peter said in 1 Peter 1 about the Word of God, and that is Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Again, I quoted this verse quickly last week, but we really didn't have time to drill down at all in it. This is Ephesians, or excuse me, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. And what I would describe these two verses as is this is, this is the, the, the Scripture's potency. So we've got Scripture's sufficiency, Psalm 19. We've got uh, Scripture's efficiency, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And now we have Scripture's potency. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And if you're familiar with your Bible, you know that, that the scriptures are likened to a lot of different things in the scriptures. They're likened to food. We already read some of those verses. A lamp. We already read a verse about that. Likened to fire. A hammer. Seed. Peter mentions that in 1 Peter 1. Uh, James talks about the scriptures being a mirror that shows us our sin and both the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 talks about the sword of the Spirit and now the writer of Hebrews likens God's word to a sword. Notice he says, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So what is it that makes scripture so potent? Well, number one, it's dynamic. It's dynamic, it's living. And so the writer here was talking about the dynamic quality of the Word of God. It's not just a collection of outdated, irrelevant writings from a bunch of old dead guys. You know, just kind of get it and blow the dust off every time you open it up saying, well, I wonder if I'm going to get anything out of this. No, because while the Scriptures were written in times and cultures that are far removed from us, these ancient words are as alive today as the moment they were inspired especially if you believe in the illumination of the Spirit of God who is in, the, in you and dwells with you. 
He brings the scriptures to life. They give us life, regeneration. They sustain our life, sanctification. In other words, God's, God's word makes us alive and keeps us alive. In fact, Moses said, it's our very life. He described the law to the people of Israel. He said, this is your life. Deuteronomy 32, 47. So it's living, he said, but it's also active. The word there, energes, is where we get our word, what? Energy, right? So he's talking about how the scriptures are energetic, they're effective, they're always at work producing changes in our lives. They're convicting us and confronting us and and correcting us and comforting us and conforming us to the image of Christ. Even if this might sound like a Sunday after Christmas boring message to someone out there, guess what? The Word is working right now. It's active. It's alive. And it's not because of me. It's because of what you have in front of you. Martin Luther said it this way, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. A great picture, right? That sometimes that's what the Bible does. It kind of tracks us down. It runs us down and tackles us, right? Wraps us up and hog ties us. So it's dynamic. But it's also dissecting. Notice what he goes on to say here. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That two-edged sword was the, the Greek machaira. This was the short little dagger sword. And in the ancient world, this was the sharpest weapon in the soldier's arsenal. This was the sword that Paul mentioned in Ephesians six seventeen, the armor of God. Right, the sword of the Spirit. And notice he says it's piercing. In other words, it's able to lay us wide open and expose sin in our lives. You remember when Luke described the effect of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, it says the people were pierced to the heart. And by the way, that wasn't because Peter was such a powerful preacher, it's because he was quoting the Old Testament scriptures. And showing the people that they had killed the Messiah. That they had waited for so long. And they were pierced to the heart. That was the word of God doing its work. And he says it it pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit. In other words, it's able to, to, to divide the indivisible. And when you think about the soul and the spirit are, are as closely interwoven in the spiritual part of us as, as joints and marrow are as closely interwoven in the physical part of us. But it's able, it's, it's that precise. Amy Carmichael, the renowned missionary to India, she said this, if you have never been hurt by the word, by a word from God, it's probably that you've never heard God speak. In other words, sometimes it hurts to read the Bible. Sometimes it hurts to hear a message from God's word. So it's dynamic, it's dissecting, but notice it's also discerning. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Greek word is kritikos here, which is the word we get critic. In other words, that the, the, the scriptures discern what really is going on in our hearts and minds, which, by the way, the Bible says you and I can't even do that ourselves. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then the Lord said, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. How does he do that? He does it through his word. And he judges the thoughts and intentions of our mind, which I don't know about your mind and your thoughts, but they often seem like a tangled web of sinful desires and feelings and emotions and motives. How do I untangle all that? Well, the Word of God is able to do that. Ultimately, God understands exactly what's going on 
in our hearts, and he helps us see things the way they really are and helps us sort them out with his word. And so God's word is, is so powerful, it's able to penetrate to the deepest, darkest recesses of our hearts and our minds. It reveals the, the secrets of our hearts and exposes what's hiding in every nook and cranny of our minds. There's no part of our being that doesn't come under the scrutiny of God's word. That's why it has such power to impact every area of our lives. You see, how did the world get, how did the word get that powerful? Why is the word of God so potent? Well, it's simply because of whose word it is. It's the word of the Lord. It's the sword of the Lord, if you will. Notice verse 13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So the and there connects this verse with the one before it, so these verses go together. They're a package deal. In other words, God and his word are inseparably linked. You can't separate the book from its author. And the word is the way it is because of whose it is. It's God's word. And God's character is inherent in his word. And so God's omnipotence and omniscience flow through his word. What makes the Bible so dynamic and it gives it the ability to dissect our hearts with such precision and so accurately discern every aspect of our lives is because it's the word of the all-powerful, all-knowing God. That's why. And we look in, when we look into the word, it's as if we're looking into the very face of God. And it's... It should be the same experience whenever we have our quiet time, what Isaiah concluded in his mind in Isaiah chapter 6, when he said, I saw the Lord, he also concluded, if I saw the Lord, he also sees me, right? And I'm undone is what his conclusion was. So whenever we're exposed to the word of God, we are, in essence, being exposed to God himself. And whenever we come to the Bible, we come face to face with God. I'll never forget the expression that our speaker at Man Camp used. He said that the Bible is a portal into the presence of God. What a great image, especially if you are familiar with the Lord or, or, or um, the Chronicles of Narnia, right? And they, the kids walk through that wardrobe into the, into the world, the, the world of Narnia, right? And, and so as you read the scriptures, it's like you enter into the presence of God. This is the portal to the presence of God. But that could be also scary, <laughs> Right? Because notice it says, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That word open literally means naked. That we find ourselves standing in the presence of God with all of our sin uncovered and exposed. There's no way to cover it up. There's no place to hide. Adam and Eve tried that, didn't work. So we're, it says that we're open, notice, and laid bare. Literally, the word there in the Greek is the word where we get trachea, the trachea or the throat, which is an unusual word here. It's only used here in the New Testament. Um, it's been associated with a couple different things. Uh, one was a, a wrestle, it was like a kind of a chokehold, if you will, in, in ancient wrestling, that the opponent would seize you by the neck, right, and you'd be tapping out. It was also associated with the sacrificial system when the priest would, would, would pull back the head of an animal before it slit its throat with a knife. And a similar thing was done with a criminal back then who was brought before the judge for sentencing and the guard would pull up his head and back and put a knife to his throat so he couldn't turn away. He was forced to look at the judge in the eyes the whole time. That's the idea here is that God seizes us and he lays the double-edged sword of his word against our throats and he forces us to look at him who is, our, who is our eternal judge. 
and we're rendered completely helpless and we're forced to stand face to face and there is nothing we can do to avert or avoid the discerning gaze of God. We know that, right? God sees everything we do. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing can be hid from God. That's why we were, were talking uh, several weeks ago about Coram Deo, living in the presence of God. He knows what we do, when we do it, where we do it, why we do it. And someday we're going to all have to stand before him and give an account for everything that we did or didn't do. He says that. And all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. In other words, with whom we must give an account. And just like a human judge makes his rulings based on the standards of law that the government has laid down, so God will make his rulings based on the standard of the laws he's laid down in the scriptures. This is what he will use as his standard to judge us. And so, whether you're doing it now or not, someday every one of us will have to submit our lives to the scrutiny of God's word. Jesus said in John 12, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. And so we will be examined, we will be judged based on whether or not our lives lined up with the word of God. I guess one way to look at it is that every time we read the word of God or hear the word of God preached, it's like we're going under the knife. We're going into surgery. You may have not thought about that when you came here this morning, but you were being wheeled into surgery. You were going under the knife. And the divine surgeon uses a divine scalpel, his word, to perform surgery on our souls and to cut out the cancer of sin in our lives. And let's face it, if you've been in surgery, that's a scary thing, right? Going into surgery. I remember going into a surgery one time, and the last thing I remember before I conked out, I looked over, and there was this lady dressed from head to toe in white, like she was a butcher. And I was like, oh, man, I am in big trouble. I'm thankful I'm passing out right now. I'm not going to see what's going to happen next. It's a scary thing. But it's comforting when you have great confidence in the surgeon that's doing the operation. And so when it comes to undergoing the piercing ministry of the word in our lives, guess who the surgeon is? Jesus Christ. God's word is also referred to in the Bible as the word of Christ. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Christ is synonymous with the word. He is the word. So Christ is the one who wields the sword of the scriptures. So we're in good hands, in other words. Got nothing to worry about. But again, it's just a good reminder of the potency, the power of God's word. And so what we've seen today, right, as I said, three sermons in one. <laughs> the word of God is sufficient, the word of God is efficient, and the word of God is potent. And that's why we can't live without it. And honestly, I'm convicted. I'm humbled when I read these passages. Because in light of these passages, it should be astounding to any of us when we fail to consistently spend time in God's word. It seems like we take this thing for granted, doesn't it? Most of us have multiple copies of God's word lying around our house. We forget that there are fellow believers around the world who don't own a copy of the scriptures, let alone seen a copy of the scriptures. Got a little homework assignment this afternoon. Go home and go on YouTube and look up Christians 
receiving the Bible for the first time. China, Christians in China, Chinese Christians receiving uh, or a copy of the scriptures for the first time. And there's like a minute-long video of these, you would have thought it was Christmas, all these Chinese young people swarming this box of Bibles and pulling them out. And the very first thing they do is they bring it up to their face and they kiss it. This was their first ever copy of the scriptures. And while mine collects dust, while yours collects dust, I think most of you know that uh, I have a love for the Puritans. And one of my favorite books that I highly recommend, if you want a kind of a good introduction to the Puritans, it's a book called Quest for Godliness by J.A. Packer. And uh, it's a great, great resource. And in it, he describes an episode where one of the Puritans, Thomas Goodwin, described here when he went to hear a certain Puritan preacher named Mr. Rogers. This is not the Mr. Rogers that got dressed in a sweater and all that stuff, right? But his subject that morning was the scriptures. And he says in his sermon, he talked to the congregation about their neglect of the Bible. He impersonated God saying to them, quote, I have trusted you so long with my Bible, you have slighted it. It lies in your houses all covered with dust and cobwebs. You care not to listen to it, therefore you shall no longer have my Bible. And he acted like he was carrying away their Bibles from them, and then he impersonated the people falling down on his knees, crying out and pleading with God. You can just imagine this impassioned Puritan preacher. Lord, whatever you do to us, take not your Bible from us. Kill our children, burn our houses, destroy our goods. Only spare us your Bible. Don't take away your Bible. Again, he impersonated God's response, saying, well, I will try you a while longer. Here is my Bible for you. I will see how you will use it, whether you will love it more, observe it more, practice it more, and live more according to it. Goodwin said that the entire congregation was moved to tears that he himself was so overwhelmed with conviction that he hung on the neck of his horse weeping for 15 minutes before he was able to mount after the sermon was over. When was the last time you sat in your car for 15 minutes weeping because you were cut by the word of God on, one, on a, any given Sunday morning? And then Packer brings this to a conclusion talking about the Puritans. He said, this antidote takes us to the very heart of Puritanism. The congregation's reaction shows that Rogers was touching their conscience at its most sensitive point. For Puritanism was, above all else, a Bible movement. To the Puritan, the Bible was in truth the most precious possession that this world affords. His deepest conviction was that reverence for God means reverence for Scripture, and serving God means obeying Scripture. To his mind, therefore, no greater insult could be offered to the Creator than to neglect his written word, and conversely, there would be no truer act of homage to him than to prize it and pour over it, and to live it out and give out its teaching. Intense veneration for Scripture as the living word of the living God and a devoted concern to know it and do all that it prescribes was Puritans, Puritanism's hallmark. And I trust and I pray that that will be the hallmark of this church and our lives, that we would so honor God by prizing his word and pouring over his word and practicing his word and proclaiming his word for others to hear. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us this precious book, this precious possession. Forgive us for neglecting it, for not obeying it, not heeding it, blowing it off. We confess to you that we need to fall in love with you and your word all over again, especially as we head into a, a new year and however this year went, in our time with your word or how we responded to your word, whether we even read your word or lived your word, we have a fresh start coming up here. 
a new opportunity. I pray that we would go into this new year with more zeal to not just read your word and to meditate on your word, but to obey your word than we've ever had. And that we would always remember that you gave us this book, not just to know this book, but to know you. And that our time in your word would always be just a, simply a means to get to know you better. And so that we could live our lives in a manner that's more pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.